0: Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, questioning,
1: questioning, tweaking, tweaking, tweaking.
0: Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company.
1: Like my friends like you, think you're crazy.
0: I think you've got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process.
1: We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur.
0: From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town.
1: Boise, Idaho.
0: London. Mullah,
1: Palestine.
0: Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday.
1: It's a startup grind. Quick question. How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? 100? 1,000? 20,000? If your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing, even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I just didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all, and there were too many emails to go through one at a time. Thankfully, I found Samebox, and I can't recommend it enough. Samebox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so only the messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. There's also this amazing thing called Black Hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from that sender again. It's so rewarding. Visit sameboxcom slash Startup Grind today and get an extra $20 credit on top of the already free two-week trial. Check it out today and let me know if you love reaching Inbox Zero as easily as I do nowadays. Again, that's S-A-N-E. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a special interview between Startup Grind's founder and CEO and the founder of America Online, Steve Case in Silicon Valley. Steve recently released his first book, The Third Wave, on what the next era of the American startup ecosystem will look like for entrepreneurs. Steve is now the founding partner of the investment firm Revolution Partners, which bets on tech entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. So far, they've backed startups like Living Social, Sweetgreen, BigCommerce, and Handy. Steve became CEO of AOL in 1991 and led the company until the merger with Time Warner in 2001 in a $164 billion deal that was eventually deemed one of the worst mergers in history. Case attended the prestigious Puna House School, where Barack Obama also went to high school. In 2011, the president appointed him to lead the Startup America Partnership, a nonprofit aimed at spurring the growth of new companies. His Case Foundation is devoted to employing the internet for more effective and efficient philanthropy. Steve attended Williams College, where he received a bachelor's degree. Let's listen in to the founder of the company that got America online, Steve Case, interviewed in Silicon Valley last month.
2: Thank you.
0: You can sit down now. Well, welcome to Silicon Valley. Good to be back. Um, there's so much to talk about. Um, how, so, I, you know, I, I've interviewed a lot of founders, but I don't interview a lot of New York Times number one bestsellers. And so I'm a little bit flustered tonight. So I hope you'll for- good. That's probably
2: to my advantage.
0: Forgive me a little bit. Um, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, t- t- take us take us back a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about um, some of your earliest memories of being an entrepreneur. Uh, you, you could start with AOL. You could start well before that if you'd like. Um, and I know you talk about in the in the book. You talk about how everyone goes through. Uh, you know, tremendously difficult experiences along that journey. I wonder if, if you would just talk about your roots about entrepreneurship a little bit and tell us uh, about some of the more kind of poignant memories that you have that were difficult along that road.
2: Sure. Well, it's great to be here and uh, Derek and Startup Grind and we've been partners on a number of different initiatives including our Rise of the Rest road trips around the country uh, and so it's great to be here and, and, and thanks to you all for coming out. In terms of my kind of backstory, I was did like many of you probably did kind of a variety of entrepreneurial things when I was a kid. Nothing really amounted to anything, but I learned a lot. Uh, And then I, uh, when I was in college, happened to read in 1980. Happened to read a book uh, by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave, uh, which really was mesmerizing and sort of inspired me to kind of. You know, he basically said the first wave was the agricultural revolution, the second wave was the industrial revolution, the third wave was, was going to be the technology revolution, and essentially, you now 36 years ago, uh, talked about the Internet. And back then it wasn't you know, it was still more of a concept, uh, but I thought it was really you know, pretty interesting. So I, I wanted to do that when I was graduating. Um, there was no like, Internet companies to go to back then in 1980, so that was not an option. And frankly, there wasn't much of a startup culture back then either, so that wasn't really an option. Uh, So I ended up going to work for two big companies for a few years. Two years at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, and then one year at a division of of PepsiCo, uh, Pizza Hut for about a year. And then finally moved to the D.C. area in 1983 to join a startup that was doing something in the online world, which I was sure was going to be the next big thing. And like, you know, a month after I got there, you know, the, you know, they laid off like 80% of their staff and it's like, oh, like, oh, welcome to startup world. <laughs> this, is, this is not quite what I thought. Uh, and so we struggled with that for a couple of years, but eventually two of the other people I met there, Jim Kimsey and Mark Seraph and I co-founded uh, AOL in 1985. Um, and at the time, I know it sounds crazy, particularly for the younger folks here, but back then, thirty one years ago, when we started, three percent of Americans were online, and they were online on average one hour per week. So when we said we wanted to get America online, that actually was the aspiration uh, and it took a decade, and it was a lot of you know fits and starts, and you know two steps forward, one step back, and there were you know, sometimes where we really think, didn't think we were going to make it. It looked like we were going to raise the funding or a partnership we thought was important was blowing up or, you know, a whole host of things which are pretty typical for that startup journey. But thankfully, we stuck with it and eventually, kind in the mid-90s in particular, things really uh,
0: accelerated. What's, uh, it, let's talk about a few of the experiences of that that, that uh, you know, you, you talk about a lot of these things in in the third wave in your new book. Um, one of those is this partnership that you did with Apple, which was like blood, sweat, and tears, and then sort of saved you guys, and then you kind of, it, it just took all these twists and turns. Could you talk to us a little bit about, about that experience and you know, a startup, you know, doing a deal with a, with a big company at the time? How did, that, how did that come about? I'm
2: happy to talk about it, but it does give me a little post-traumatic stress, <laughs> just to go back and think about it.
0: Now, the, the, the,
2: the back story there is when we started in 1985, uh, we raised $1 million. Of venture capital, uh, and at the time there were some other big players uh, that were circling. Some big companies like AT&T and Knight Ritter and GE and and others were kind of, you know, Reader's Digest. There a bunch of people were doing different things. But one in particular that was had got announced was IBM and Sears announced a joint venture. They ended up calling Prodigy, and they committed one billion dollars to launch Prodigy. So we like we had one million dollars. They had one billion dollars. Didn't seem like hand-to-hand combat would be the way to go. So our strategy for the you know first five years or so was essentially partners. You know we we essentially were doing private label, white label services. So the first one we did was with Commodore at the time. The Commodore 64 was the number one home computer, and we created a service called QLink. And then we did one with uh, Radio Shack, Tandy, which at the time was a pretty big personal computer company. We created a service called PC Link. Then we partnered with IBM to create a service called Promenade, and then we partnered with Apple to create a service called AppleLink Personal Edition. And I, you know, it was such a big deal. I actually moved from DC to San Francisco, got an apartment here. For six months, every day showed up at the Apple offices trying to find somebody. Is that
0: yeah? I I mean that's what this that's is that right? Like you true. just sat in the lobby, or did you well, have I, people I, to I, meet? Did you always have? A I meeting knew some
2: or? people to meet, but no, I, I kind of it was it was pretty pathetic to be honest. I was I basically <laughs> showing up every day, and it, finally after a couple months, somebody there. Like
0: trailing people in as they walk through security and know, things, or maybe a little bit,
2: yeah. Uh, but after a couple months, I got a consultant badge.
0: Oh, that's nice. They
2: they are tired of signing me in and out. So I, somebody <laughs> signed me up as a consultant, and then I actually found an empty cubicle and would you know hang out there for a little while. Uh, but eventually, kind of you know, <laughs> I think I wore them down, and they decided to you know, do this deal. Maybe just to get rid of me, I don't know. But I, it w- it w- you know do this deal, to, and uh, we launched it. Um, was Some fanfare, Raised some money to to launch it. Uh, but then about a year into it, uh, they really decided they didn't like the partnership. They didn't like it, they had never licensed the Apple brand name to any other company, and they regretted doing that. Uh, And they also were having basically battles over marketing. We were trying to give away software for free. They wanted to sell software. We were trying to give it away through a lot of channels. They wanted to force everybody to go to Apple authorized stores. So it just was a lot of conflict about marketing distribution. We just didn't see the world. The same way, of course, now their are resurgent is in large part through an app store where software is generally free and not in the store, but be that as it may, that 30 years ago, they were not, you know, that was not their, 25 years ago, that was not their, their mindset. So finally they called us and said, we're gonna cancel the deal. We just, un- unhappy with us, it was a mistake. Uh, and we went back and forth and they basically, you know, paid us a few million dollars to go away quietly, uh, which we did. But then we had to, we couldn't call it Apple blowing personal edition anymore. And so we ended up having a little internal competition, and America Online won. So we rebranded America Online, and and then you know a year or two later, started getting some traction. So what looked like a crisis, I think a lot of people thought we we're going to hit the wall, we you know weren't going to survive that. You know the death of the Apple partnership, you know turned out to be actually opened a door that ended up you know taking us to new heights.
0: Well, and that was, and also part of that, if I correct me if I'm wrong, that was a big part of how you raised venture capital and got people on board and things like that, and then. and and I think as an entrepreneur who's been doing it for seven years or however long these people have been doing it, you have that moment where, oh, you're up here, and then all of a sudden, boom, like the floor falls out, and then you kind of navigated this lemonade out of a bunch of lemons, and you managed to get them to give you money in order to get out of the partnership, which most people might have just said, hey, we're just, you know, you're done. We're done with you, and you you managed to actually get something out of it and keep going no, I think I think they,
2: I think they realized that you know that they their decision to cancel a deal created problems for us. We had raised a few million dollars to basically be able to launch those things so I think they 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 felt they should pay something. It was really more debate about you know what the number should be um, and you know it did create some tension. that some of the new investors who invested because they thought the Apple partnership was such a wonderful thing you know, were kind of freaked out and there were some people who thought maybe I should get fired, and so that was that was uh, not a great time. But you know, eventually, eventually, it was we were able to kind of, uh, you know, kind of turn it around. I think there are a lot of those, you know, kind of examples where. And one of the things I talk about in the book, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, frankly, is some of the lessons learned in what I call the Internet's first wave, uh, I think, are going to be applicable in the Internet's third wave. But we're less true in this last 10 or 15 years for the internet's second wave and so that's what literally led me to kind of write a book mostly about the future trying to talk about where things are going uh, but i did include some of the stories about some of those early days less because i think people are interested in those stories or kind of a memoir kind of thing because i don't think that many people are but mostly because as shakespeare said sometimes the past is prologue and some of the lessons from that first wave I think are going to be helpful to, to the innovators in the, in the third wave.
0: So let's, let's talk about that. What, you have these kind of three P's of, of what's coming and what, what will be relevant in the third wave. Let's, one of those is partnerships, right, is that right. working, let's start there. Why, why are partnerships going to be so critical in, in this next phase of, of entrepreneurship?
2: Well, the three P's uh, that I think are going to you know, be important are partnership, policy, and perseverance. But maybe uh, for, for those of you who uh, have not as, as read the book yet, I'm sure there's some of you out there who just wandered in Same here now wondering people. where you are. But for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, let me frame it in terms of what the three waves are, and then I'll go into the, the, the three Ps. Uh, the, the first wave was building the internet. Uh, And as I said, when we got started, nobody was online, nobody really cared, nobody felt they were missing anything, just seemed kind of a weird hobbyist phenomenon kind of for a few weird people. Uh, By the end of the first wave, kind of year 2000 or so, it had gone from nobody was online to everybody was online and from nobody cared about it to you couldn't live without it. And that was the foundational technologies, the software, the networks, the servers, the essentially building the on-ramps to get people connected and educating people about why they, they get connected. So that really was the, the first wave, which then set off the second wave, which has been the last 15 years or so, uh, which is building apps and services on top of the internet. That's really been, been the focus. And the, you know, the great iconic companies of the second wave, like Google and Facebook and Twitter and Waze and you know, Snapchat, you can kind of make up your own list. Basically with software, usually apps, Running on top of the phone, on uh, top of the internet, and in most cases, running on phones. You know, the first wave was more about PCs. Second wave, obviously, was more about, you know, mobile uh, devices, particularly smartphones. Uh, and that's really been where a lot of the momentum has been in this past uh, decade. Obviously, huge success think Facebook now, like 1.6 billion users. And at the beginning of the second wave, called the year 2000, not only was Facebook not founded, I think Mark Zuckerberg was like in 14 years old. You know, I don't think he was even in high school yet. So that just shows you the pace at which this, this uh, second wave kind of you know, took hold. And there will still be opportunities for other apps and services kind of running on top of the internet. But you know, I think the third wave is now emerging and that's gonna integrate the internet in some interesting and, and seamless and pervasive and sometimes even invisible ways and in the process have the opportunity to really Revolutionize in pretty significant ways. Things like healthcare, things like education, things like transportation, energy, food, uh, a lot of financial services, uh, smart cities, and, and, and autonomous cars, and sensors, and Internet of Things. There's just a lot of things that are that are in, you know just in, in development uh, that are really going to accelerate in this in this third wave. But the playbook, I think, for this third wave is gonna be more like the first wave uh, and, and that's where the three Ps come in. So partnership, you know, what we learned with that first wave was you can't go alone. There's an African proverb I say, if you wanna go quickly, you can go alone, but if you wanna go far, you must go together. We had 300 partnerships at AOL. To, 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 you know, that not, the internet would not be part of everyday life without a lot of companies working together, collaboratively doing their part. Partnerships were essential. In the second wave, not so much. Facebook actually didn't need partnerships. Snapchat didn't need partnerships. It was more about creating a great app and having it break through the the noise and and get a, get attention and then be spread virally. So it went from a small thing to a big thing, and basically without partners, you know, for for the most part, uh, uh, partners will become important again in the third way because. While some of the revolution education will come with apps and, and learning in the cloud, a lot of it's going to happen in classrooms. You know, fourth grade classrooms and university. You know, kind of, uh, kind of uh, classrooms and, and integrating technology there will require partnerships with teachers and professors and schools and universities, and not just you know, kind of apps in the cloud. Similarly, healthcare. There's been some innovation, obviously, in the in the second way, better consumer information about health, things like that. Uh, but if we're really going to significantly put a dent in, in sort of the you know, health care system, better outcomes, more convenience, lower costs, it's going to require actually working with like the doctors and working with the hospitals and figuring out ways to kind of partner with them to, uh, to, to move us forward. So this partnership is going to become a, a really big uh, deal. Policy is going to become a big deal, too. Most of these sectors are regulated. You know The drugs we take and the food we eat and the, you know, the cars we, we drive or have, have autonomous vehicles driving for us are gonna be regulated. You can debate what the regulations should be. Maybe they should be different. Maybe there should be a lighter touch, but there are gonna be some regulations because these are pretty fundamental aspects of our lives. So the innovators that are tackling these problems have to engage on policy, have to understand regulations, have to talk to government. Again, second wave for the most part, that wasn't necessary. It was more about the software, more about the, the app. And the third is, is perseverance. In that first wave, you know, we were not alone in being a 10 year in the making overnight success. We were at it and at it and at it slogging away until finally we, we, we broke through. Second wave, there were a lot of truly overnight successes, Facebook and, and Snapchat among them. Uh, I went from being an idea in a dorm room to being a pretty significant valuable company, essentially overnight, you know, a year, year or two. Uh, and I think in the third wave, because these are difficult problems, require partnership, require engagement, policy. I think it'll be harder. It'll take, take longer. So that's the you know the framing of these these uh, these waves, and that's sort of the the three Ps, which as I said were essential in the first wave, not as essential for most companies in the second wave, and I think will become essential again in the third wave.
1: A quick break from the Startup Prime podcast for some recent startup headlines. Uber recently launched in Kampala and Uganda, representing its 7th sub-Saharan city. Uber is also set to launch in Ghana and Tanzania before the end of this month. Uber also launched Uber Bike in Amsterdam, which allows riders to order cars with a bicycle rack. The service carries a $4.50 additional charge. Online learning platform Udemy has raised $60 million from NASPERS. Udemy has 40,000 courses from 20,000 instructors, teaching 11 million students in 190 countries. Udemy has raised $173 million to date. According to Bloomberg sources, Snapchat has passed 150 million daily active users. Snapchat was up to 110 million users in December and has surpassed the 140 million people using Twitter. Snapchat was founded in 2011 but recently raised $1.8 billion, bringing its total raise to $2.6 billion. Let's get back to the interview with Steve case
0: If I want to take on something as big as healthcare or education or and, and disrupt that and have an impact on that as, as you say it's coming wh- where do I start I mean where where do i if i'm it's me and my co-founder where where do we start do we start with the policymakers? do we start with the partnerships do we start at the drawing board, at the whiteboard, Like where, ha, no, ha, does no, that I change?
2: It, I think it still starts with the idea, starts with the product, starts with the service. Uh, and then and, uh, and you figure out ways to essentially bring it to market and build a kind of a, almost a network around your, your idea. Uh, but I also think in the third wave, while the, the, the role of engineers will still be obviously critical imp- critically important, in many of these sectors having some domain expertise and credibility is also gonna be important. Uh, so some of the most innovative uh, companies in, in, uh, in education, ed tech, actually are started by former teachers. There's, as you know from some of your work with Startup Grind, uh, New Orleans, for example, is a really innovative ed tech cluster, uh, in part because Katrina devastated New Orleans, devastated the school system. They decided to re- restart with a, essentially a clean slate, a charter school network, it hired a lot of people, including from Teach for from Ameri- from America who came there. And after doing that for a while, in a, in a school system that was much open, went more open to trying stuff than almost any other school system in the country, uh, a bunch of people decided to move out of being teachers and being into entrepreneurs. And it's, it's, it's growing quite, quite uh, robustly. And I think similarly in, in health care, if you really have a you know, better way to manage diabetes or, uh, or, or deal with cancer or other kinds of things... You know, getting some some folks who actually have been doctors and done it firsthand, I think, will be important to inform your perspective in terms of what you should build, and also give you credibility to then be able to sell it into Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic or or, or something like that. So I think it starts with the with the with the idea of what you're trying to accomplish, but I think it also you know requires having a more diverse team of people uh, in all respects uh, that kind of surround that idea, and then figuring out how to go beyond thinking of it just as a technology solution, a software solution, an app, to figuring out how it can be integrated uh, in, in these systems, uh, which again is hard. I'm not, and I'm not, you know, when I talk to you know, most um, entrepreneurs about this and, and talk about the three Ps, it's kind of a bummer. Partnerships are hard, policy's hard, perseverance is hard. It'd be easier if you could go it alone it'd be easier if there were no regulations, and it'd be easier if it was an overnight success. I get that, but I also get that the, you know, if you're really gonna take a serious whack at some of these, you know, sectors, which I would argue are the most important aspects of our lives, like how we stay healthy, how our kids learn, how we move around, you know, what we eat, I mean, these are pretty fundamental, you know, things, which is not to say that, you know, a photo app or a dating app or is not useful too, but this is pretty fundamental stuff. It's going to be harder, and and you know some people will run from that, some will run to it. And I think in the third wave, the the, the my guess is the uh, next iconic entrepreneurs will take on some of these challenges, but bring a different mindset and a different playbook to bear.
0: Let's let's talk about policy for a minute. And uh, you are uh, famous for saying that America is once a startup, which is a which is a great a great quote and it's true, um, w- what are we now? Is America like IBM or something? Or what, what, where, would you, where would you put us at this point uh, from how far we've no, come and, and what's, what's happening? I think, it's, I think we're still pretty well positioned. I and mean, the, the, the,
2: the, the framing of that, we've done this together, is that I, I remind people, particularly in Washington DC, uh, that 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was just an idea. A few people floated over on boats with the idea of a better life. And it went from this tiny little startup nation to the leader of the free world. And largely because of the fact that it went from this non-existent economy to the leading economy in the world. And that did not happen by accident. It was the work of entrepreneurs first in the agricultural revolution and industrial revolution and the technology revolution as Toffler said uh, that really kind of led the way and took America from where it was to its you know its position in in the world so I think that is the the history and right now we still have a lead uh, but we have seen particularly over the last decade uh, the globalization of entrepreneurship 50 years ago we saw the globalization of capital Fifty years ago, we saw the globalization of of, of things like uh, entertainment. We saw the globalization of manufacturing. Now we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurship. And as you travel around the world, as you do with Startup Grind, there are a bunch of countries that kind of have figured out that the secret sauce that's made America great is innovation entrepreneurship. And they're saying, well, hmm, maybe we should do more of that. Maybe we should invest more in basic research. Maybe we should create the right regulatory Kind of infrastructure. Maybe we should create the right investment incentives. Maybe we should, you know, create the right or put in place the right immigration policy to attract talent and, and win. Was now a global battle for talent. So the battle's been joined, and I think we can continue to, you know, kind of lead the way. But only if we, you know, recognize the importance of it, deal with some of those issues uh, ourselves, which is one of the, you know, the parts of the book. I call it my the, my manifesto chapter. What it takes to, you know, keep America kind of in in the uh, in, in the lead, uh, and that I would say, and I say this with, with, you know, with tremendous respect for everything that's happening in Silicon Valley, I really do, it's amazing what's, what's, what's happening, happening here, and will continue to happen here, uh, but if we're going to remain the most innovative entrepreneur nation, we need to make sure innovation and job creation is alive and well all across the country, and we need to make sure investors are paying attention to what entrepreneurs are building all across the country which is the point of this rise the rest effort. Last year, 75% of venture capital went to California, New York, and Massachusetts, three States. And while there are great things happening in California, I'm sure you're involved in some of them, uh, great things happening in New York, great things happening in Massachusetts, 75% of the great things are not happening in those three States. Yet. That's you know, most of the media focus. Most of the investor focus is on those. That has to change. And oh, by the way, They're different statistics, but about 90% of that venture capital went to men, 10% to women. Overwhelmingly, uh, kind of also, uh, not just the guys, but mostly the white guys. And so I don't think we can, in fact, I know, we cannot remain that leader if we're investing in a few places and a few people in a, in, a, in a few places. So we've got to level the playing field. We've got to kind of make a, have a more inclusive approach to entrepreneurship that's not defined by place or, or person. Uh, and you know, that's one of the big things I think will happen and needs to happen as this third wave takes off. And oh, by the way, the reason I'm confident it will happen, again, I say this you know, recognizing I'm like in the heart of Silicon Valley, is some of the industries that are gonna be disrupted, I've mentioned some healthcare and education and so forth, actually are in the middle of the country. The, you know, 75% of the Fortune 500 companies are in, not on the coast, they're in the middle of the country. And if partnerships are more important, some of those partnerships an will be closer to those companies. And There are great things happening, you look at any sector, you know, take ag tech as an example, agriculture technology, actually great, great things happening in Silicon Valley. I think a lot of things, great things will continue to happen in Silicon Valley, but you know what? Also a lot of great things are happening in like Louisville, Kentucky, which understands farming. And if I had to bet on one city in the next, uh, you know, decade on ag tech, it'd be St. Louis, why? They've got big companies like Monsanto there with tens of thousands of engineers who understand farming. Some of them are going to do startups. And I'll bet you there's 100 ag tech startups in St. Louis. A lot of those people know a lot about agriculture. Yeah. And, and so you know, it, it's, we just need to make sure that, that if people want to be here in New York or Boston or have you, obviously they should be here. Uh, but if they want to be some other place, how do we make it easier for them to start companies or scale companies e- everywhere? Um, and that you know, entrepreneurship dynamic is not just, we're not just seeing the entrepreneurs regionalized within the country, we're also seeing it globalized around the world.
0: How many people here are not from Silicon Valley? Raise your hand. It's almost the whole room. I mean, it's probably 70% of the whole r- of the room. And and this is what's been so interesting to me about the Rise of the Rest Tour, which which you started and. And came out of kind of this bus tour phenomenon from the AOL days, and then, you know, at where you guys would go city to city, and and this is like, it's like a it's like a presidential campaign, and the president is entrepreneurship, you know, and like you go you go from city to city, and we go to Buffalo, and then we go to, you know, Manchester, and then we go to, you know, Atlanta, and it's like just the energy and the amount of you know the mount the sheer quantity, but also the quality of entrepreneurs coming out of those places it's everyone in this room who who is now here at the moment is here um but it's these same people in all these different cities and and they're building they're building as you say they're bu- building kind of city specific or in, in some cases like you know things that are perfect for that city in DC it might be a security company or in you know we all know you know Boston and and and, and the domain expertise there in New York but even t- you know in Buffalo or in 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 Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia—it's just incredible to see—and and you have gone and like picked the very best and and funded. I think it's about 35 companies in dozens of cities. Um, and what like uh, the impact? I think you know it's been in the last few years, and we'll see this kind of trail out. But it's like it feels like it's it's kind of like that first jolt that a lot of entrepreneurs need, where it's like even though some of them have funding, but it's like hey, somebody that I've heard of finally put their stamp of approval on this person and they were great before, but now it kind of wakes everybody up to like, wow, look at, you know, Steve Case, you know, invest in this company or, you know, really like this company. It just it, it's created a lot of, I think a really a lot of positive outcomes. Well, I, I appreciate that.
2: It's still it's still early days. It's a little bit like, you know, with with AOL that when we started it was three percent of people online and most people were skeptical about whether people would get online. I know they you know you run into a lot of people who say, well, I actually disagree. I think all great innovation will continue to be in Silicon Valley and New York and, and Boston. Uh, and There are a lot of people who have that at view, but it's beginning to change. Part of the reason I'm in town today is Google hosted for the third year in a row, uh, essentially, a demo day f- to support regional entrepreneurship. There are 11 companies from 11 cities around the country. We some, have the winner here tonight, some, uh,
0: some- We do. Where's the cup? Who's got the, the, the cup? cup? Hold it up! Ah, yeah, the yeah. cop.
2: The cop. <laughs> from from uh, full of milk Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, so Alcohol that's that's an example, and and the interesting thing is, in that room were a hundred or so venture capitalists based here from the top firms, uh, and they're kind of saying, you know, yes, we understand. Yeah, you know, for the most part, the you know, the the, the playbook for venture capital in this region for the last decade is you get in the car and you drive to the company. You know, In the third wave, there'll be much more getting on a plane to, you know, to visiting these cities and seeing seeing what's happening. There a couple other examples just to, to, to highlight this. Uh, and again, I, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting Silicon Valley is going to lose momentum. I'm actually suggesting that will continue to be strong, but these other places will rise and gain uh, momentum. And the, even the rise of the rest concept is something actually that originally... The gap will
0: narrow, basically. You know, for, uh, the more
2: opportunity will be just dis- you know, more broadly dispersed. Uh, examples, uh, one of the most interesting health IT companies that really is beginning to kind of revolutionize you know, healthcare and hospital technology, particularly around electronic medical records, is a company called Epic Systems. They're in Madison, Wisconsin. They have 10,000 employees in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, one of the you know, most interesting companies that started in athletic work, created a brand, but now is doing a lot of things in health tech is Under Armour. They're in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, one of the hottest virtual reality companies that's raised $1.3 billion of venture capital, including from Google and Alibaba, is not in Palo Alto or Boston. It's in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a company called Magic Leap. So you're you're just beginning to see, and and there's half a dozen uh, enterprise software SaaS companies on one street in Provo, Utah. So you know this is this not just completely like. I think the rest is going to rise. The rest is rising, and we're just trying to we can to help accelerate that and and showcase
0: that. How let's talk about perseverance, uh, and uh, I, I think this is this is a it's so simple, but actually. I've just found over the last seven years since I quit my job, uh, my corporate America job, that like, the people that are ultimately successful seem to be the people that survive the longest. Like, you, know, you, you have to be somewhat smart. You have to be able to recruit a team and all these, you know, have, you know, talk to customers and have insights, but really like, even people with really bad ideas, if they're here long enough, I feel like they eventually bump into something. Some good idea along the way and figure it out and and get back on and run with it. But most people don't ever survive that long. They end up just giving up. And and um, and so like I wonder like how, how do I how do I work my perseverance muscles? Like how do I how do I develop more perseverance? How do I develop more stamina to stay in the game longer? What what what, what you know what what would you say to somebody that's saying hey I'm I'm about to give up or I think I'm going to need to give up. Like, what what do I do to survive?
2: Well, obviously, there's sometimes where you should give up. You know, it actually is a dumb Are you idea. You saying to me, I should you know, give up? Know, no, uh. no, I'm not saying in every case you you should persevere. Oops. You would have to pay attention to what you know the yeah. feedback is. But I think the key is is kind of keeping an eye on the prize. Keeping it, you know, what what's the light at the end of the tunnel? What is the battle you're fighting? What is the mountain you're climbing? And is there still a logical reason why someday that actually is going to happen and do you have a reasonable kind of understanding of the context competition and so forth so there actually is a path to make that happen in my case you know there there were as i said earlier some uh, you know some dark days there, there really were some some points in time where it didn't look like we we're going to make it and there were some times where people left the company mostly because they just didn't Think it was going to survive, and figured go better, you know, get onto something else. And there were definitely many times where, like, my parents would call me and say, "Steve," (laughs) this this is why I knew where we're going. Steve, we love you. (laughs) And we're proud of you. But it doesn't seem like your online thingy is working. Do you have like a? plan B? You like is it, is it time to maybe get a like a real job? And, and I understood their concern because actually the they were right. It, was, it wasn't working. Uh, but I kept saying, but it's gonna work. I know the idea of the internet, which I know seems dumb now because we take it for granted. But in the '80s, it was looking iffy. The idea of the internet, the idea of a connected world, the idea of different ways to communicate with people and get information. So I knew that was going to happen. I just knew it, even though it was slow going for a whole host of of, of reasons. And so you know, that led me to kind of kind of continue to stick with it. There was there were there I, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Granted, the tunnel was long and the light was flickering, but I I, I was able to you know to, to Stick with it and persevere. So I think going back to your question, understanding that, and that's why some of the events you do with Startup Grind are, are, are helpful. That the, the entrepreneurial journey usually is a slog. It's usually not an overnight success. Uh, and so just understanding that and how you know the, some of the you know the you know the great companies were built uh, over usually over time, usually with more of a built to last than a built to flip kind of you know mindset. I think helps inform that you know, that perspective, and there are people that will say, no, I'd rather focus on, you know, something that's a little easier to define and if it, if it works, I'll continue to uh, run, run with it or I'll sell it to somebody and go off and do something else. And there are a lot of very successful serial entrepreneurs that have done a, a number of, of things, usually around products as opposed to platforms. Um, and that's fine, I, I'm, I'll celebrate any entrepreneur anywhere doing anything because I think that's, you know, is such a key part of, of, of uh, you know, what makes us great. But I will particularly celebrate the entrepreneurs that are taking on some of the more difficult challenges but also opportunities uh, in our communities and and taking on a little bit different mindset where perseverance does matter, there's a recognition that partnerships will increasingly matter, there's a recognition uh, that engaging on policy will become increasingly important.
0: Uh, We're going to take some questions from the audience here in just a few minutes. Uh, I just want to ask you, I'm going to go quickly round-robin, a couple of quick questions. One, at, at one point, a young Mark Andreessen reported into you when you bought his little big company Netscape. What's uh, what was he like at the time? And and you know, give it, you have any any insights on you know Mark Andreessen reporting into into you in no, the late late, we, late we, 80s? Was it was it was it? No, what, yeah, was or, the 90s. it was the mid 90s, late 90s. I think we we night, we, late went, 90s. we went we oh, uh, right, went
2: the history for those who don't know. When we went public. In 1992, was the first internet company to go public, and in that IPO, we raised ten million dollars, and the value of the company that day was seventy million dollars. And the reason it was, you know, and the interest in institutional investors was pretty modest. It's like feels like kind of a niche, niche thing. And then seven years later, we'd gone from 184,000 customers to. 25 million and from a 70 million dollar market value to 160 billion dollars and as that stock was rising we made several dozen acquisitions and a whole host of you know computer network side and content side launched a greenhouse you know acquired Netscape a bunch of bunch of things that we were, were doing to kind of broaden our portfolio of businesses before then obviously doing the merger with with Time Warner so one of those was the acquisition of Netscape and it's part of that. Mark agreed to stay on as CTO, reporting to me, and he moved to Washington D.C., Northern Virginia, and lived there for know, a year, year and a half, uh, and it was actually very, very uh, insightful in terms of some of the you know things that he thought were going to happen next. That did help inform some of our uh, of our thinking. Uh, but ultimately, he wanted to, it was sort of a more of a staff kind of role. He decided he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he moved moved back here and started with uh, Ben Horowitz, a, a software company that. Pivoted a couple of times, and then obviously now has moved into the venture capital world with with, with great success. So you're a terrific guy then, and and terrific guy
0: now. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting in how just a sense of how things have changed is, you very early in the company, you owned about three percent of AOL, right? And and I wonder, like, as you see entrepreneurs, which I, th- I think was very standard at the time, and now we see. You know, Mark Zuckerberg at an IPO is at about 30%. The Alassian guys, it's like the best IPO, you know, the last tech IPO the last 12 months. They, they were at about 37% each. Uh, you know, um, do you see, you know, what, what do you tell entrepreneurs who are trying to maintain equity, trying to protect their equity? Do you have any advice for them at the earliest stages of how, how to better protect yourself and and, and well, the value you're creating? It, it
2: really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And actually, in that era, in the 80s, early 90s, in general, the entrepreneurs did own more of the company. Bill Gates owned a lot more of Microsoft, and, as, a, as an example. Michael Dell owned a lot more of, of, of Dell. You can kind of go through the list. But what was unusual in our circumstance is it essentially was viewed by our venture investors as a restart. They had lost tens of millions of dollars in that company I joined in 1983 that promptly failed. And so when we decided to launch a new company in 1985. They, some of the same investors said, "You know, we'll invest," but they kind of like wasn't just about the new thing. They kind of felt like we owed them some money from the last thing. So that's why they started with more of the company, and over time, we earned back some of the company. But I would say that, of course, owning more is better than owning less. But it's most important that you. Figure out the path to be successful, and you know, even though I only own three percent of it when it was worth a lot of money, I did fine. I mean, yeah. And so, in our case, sure. we needed a lot of capital. We needed we needed to use the currency for acquisitions, so that that was dilutive. But I was not so much focused on what my slice was. I was trying to focus on like creating
0: a really big pie. Um, we're going to take questions right after this, uh, and that is to you know we live we live in sort of in our own. Bubble over on the West Coast, and you know you live in Washington D.C. And actually, you you, you for people that, that don't know you very well or or that don't follow you very closely, one thing that you navigate I think better than anybody is working with both sides of the aisle. It's really amazing to see how you support you support anybody with good ideas basically.
1: It's been a difficult uh,
2: period, and certainly a difficult and noisy year, and so it's not, it's not helpful. Uh, but somehow, you know, we need to figure out some way uh, to, to rebuild the center uh, and you know, reestablish that, to me, one of the key tenets of democracy is compromise. Somehow, compromise has become a bad word. You know, if you're compromising, you don't have any conviction. I think you know, I think the nature of this is you're always going to have to figure out a way to bring people together, and not everybody, anybody's going to get everything they they want. And so I think that has to be the you know the the attitude. You know, hopefully, irrespective of who's president in January, irrespective of who controls the Congress, hopefully there will be an environment where some of these issues that need attention, you know, I talked about, you know, some of them, you know, get attention. Uh, if, if not, I think it does create more risk. You know that you know the United States does lose its edge in terms of being innovative and entrepreneurial. I think there's a real, real risk of that, um, and so I, my just my approach for the past 30 years has been to stay out of politics, focus on policy, be super, you know, kind of nonpartisan, and just kind of figure out when when it's possible uh, to build some bridges that worked with the Jobs Act a few years ago, with Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, where. Where the you know with the White House and then support of the Republican majority leader, you know that got momentum around crowdfunding and on-ramp for IPOs, things like that. We need to you know have that same focus on some of the issues around. that are going to be important in the third wave around regulations and immigration. I think is a huge issue that that concerns me you know, greatly. Uh, so it's just a matter of you know sticking with it and you know kind of taking a long view. I'd rather have these things resolved sooner rather than later, but but uh, it's more how do you figure out how do you bring along a coalition of the willing uh, and, and find, find ways to you know, kind of get stuff done?
0: Let's give it up for Steve Case. Thank you very much for being here.
1: A question. How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? hundred? thousand? Twenty thousand? If your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing, even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I just didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all, and there were too many emails to go through one at a time. Thankfully, I found Samebox, and I can't recommend it enough. Samebox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so only the messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. There's also this amazing thing called Black Hole. Move an email into that folder, and you'll never hear from that sender again. It's so rewarding. Visit sameboxcom startup grind today and get an extra $20 credit on top of the already free two week trial. Check it out today and let me know if you love reaching inbox zero as easily as I do nowadays. Again, that's S A N E ebox.com/startupgrind slash startup grind.